You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. He had amassed so much power that by the early, you know, late 50s, early 60s, he, no one could control him. Robert Moses is so ingrained in the history of New York City. At the height of his power, the master builder looking to renew a city, a city broken, a city too old. At the height of his power, he held 12 offices, among them City Parks Commissioner, State Parks Council Head, State Power Commission, Chairman of the Triborough Bridge Authority. From the 1920s to the late 60s, he'd build 13 bridges in the city, 658 playgrounds, 150,000 housing units, and 416 miles of parkways. His first projects came from the huge monies of public spending for the PWA and the WPA as part of the New Deal. In 1936, he built the Triborough Bridge, connecting Manhattan, Bronx, and Queens in New York City, said the New Yorker. Between 46 and 54, no public improvement of any type, no school or sewer, was built on any city location unless Moses approved it. Even the United Nations building today retains his mark. Yet that New Yorker article was written in a time when there was a very positive image of Robert Moses. Moses had a bit of a dark side. He destroyed tenements but also seemed to detest the people who were living in them. A recent study of his parkways confirmed that their overpass clearance is well below those of surrounding causeways, those built by other builders. A step that many point to was made to avoid buses and mass transit. Some of his supporters say, barring big vehicles, was aligned with other goals of barring noisy trucks. Robert Moses is a controversial figure, and at a certain point, he's going to meet his match, and we'll talk about that in a bit. We spoke with Greg Young, and you may know him from the Bowery Boys podcast, a podcast about New York City history. So today, I'm really pleased to have Greg Young from the Bowery Boys podcast. Does that show along with Tom Myers? How long have you been doing that, uh, Graham? Hey there, Riz. First of all, hello. Thanks for having me on the show. We have been doing it, believe it or not, 
it just doesn't make any sense every time I say it out loud. Um, <laughs> almost eleven years. It'll be eleven. It'll be our, our eleventh. The eleven years ago um, in June. Well over ten wow. years. So. You know, we. Uh, I think we started at the same time. Oh, brilliant! Yeah. So how, I have a question. How did we discover what a podcast even was? Back then? <laughs> I <laughs> right? know. I know. I remember even you know, the big clunky iPods, you know, and that's what we were oh, yeah. broadcasting for back then. But your show is a show about New York City history. Yep. You know, which is a broad subject, and, and we do it. It's broad on purpose so that we can talk about. Any and all aspects in the 400 years or so of New York City, and it's you know precursor New Amsterdam, and even of course the uh, the Native Americans who lived here. I recall uh, just recently listening to it was a rebroadcast of your episode about the Great Blizzard of 1888, which really particularly hit uh, New York City. Mm-hmm. Uh, how you know the trains were were stuck, and these were elevated trains at the time, and the people were stuck up there in the trains for a long time. And yeah, uh, that's like one of those shows that um, has real that story has unique relevance because mm-hmm. it's essentially about um, how a city changes after a major catastrophic weather event, <laughs> and. You know, New York has gone through quite a few of those. <laughs> and in the case of that one, in the case of the Great Blizzard of 1888, um, the, I mean, a few major changes. I mean, as, as you mentioned, having all of those sort of overground railroads elevated above people, um, those didn't do so well mm-hmm. in storms, <laughs> storms like that. Um, you know, more seriously... Um, you know, this is the era when electricity was shiny and new, and a lot of those electrical wires were above ground, along with the telephone, uh, telegraph wires. Um, and so that didn't, do, those all kind of went down during that storm, and it was uh, quite alarming. So the city changed a lot of the ways it did these very basic infrastructure things because of that storm. And we still live with those decisions that they made because of that storm. I always find myself that looking at something with a regional approach can often be very enlightening. And we can learn about history by learning about regions. The way we sort of approach it is quasi local because we have two approaches. One of them is that we try to put as many actual locations in a show as possible, and mm-hmm. you know, clearly that's for people who are walking through the city, meaning it's the, you know for locals. But so many of these stories have a national and international reach. So we just passed the anniversary of a of the horrible tragedy that happened in New York called the Triangle Factory Fire. Yes, um, which killed dozens of people, and it, it it really put a spotlight on sort of poor work conditions. Um, there were poor working conditions all over the United States, and there had been tragedies like this for many, many years. But this was sort of the one that called the most attention, and things changed across the country. One of the issues that you hear a lot about now is infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And obviously, being the major city in the country for so long, New York City was a center of infrastructure development. Mm-hmm. We hear a lot of talk about it now. During the New Deal in the 40s and 50s, New York was the recipient of a lot of infrastructure money. I wonder if you could talk a bit about it, about New York City and infrastructure, and maybe there's something that could inform the debates 
we're having today. You know, the way I approach it is infrastructure is always seen as it just seems like it's something good and it could be good. But I guess it's more complicated than that. It is, and it's no more. It's been no more is that illustrated than in New York City history. There's sort of two. I am so pro infrastructure to this day because the needs of a of a city are always changing, and what was a really good idea 50 years ago may not be so good today. But there's two big problems that kind of thread themselves through New York City's own relationship with um, with infrastructure. One of them is just the relationship between these projects and government. And what I, what I mean to say more explicitly is corruption. In the 19th century, in particular, certainly happens in the 20th century and even to today in, in, on certain levels. These infrastructure projects like Central Park and the Brooklyn Bridge weren't just seen as a way to make the city better, but they were seen as a way to enrich those sort of in the upper corridors of city government that were in charge of this huge network of graft um, and payoffs and kickbacks. A project could be outlandish, would, would be five times more than it actually needed to be because of all the different kind of like payoffs that happened. You know, the most famous example of this, of course, is Boss Tweed and the Democratic machine Tammany Hall, which, you know, lined their pockets for decades on all sorts of infrastructure projects from those elevated trains to the development of bridges and eventually tunnels. That's one concern. Is an infrastructure project being done altruistically or is it being done to kind of like enrich those people who are voting for it and putting it into process? You know, the second thing is, are these infrastructure projects, are they good for all New Yorkers? You know, are they good for all the people in which they're going to be developed for Mm -hmm. or only for one section or one segment? And that's the kind of thing. Those are kind of the issues that you come across in the 20th century. Um, And in particular, we can spend a few moments talking about um, the Bowery Boys pet history figure, the one who up the most, and his name is Robert Moses. So Moses is really responsible for many of the great infrastructural projects in New York in the 20th century. Pretty much everything that you can complain and bitch about today in the 21st century was something that Robert Moses dreamt up in the mid-20th century. He came up at the time, he was, um, he pops up in the scene beginning the in the Late 1920s, he worked for Governor Al Smith, but then um, was appointed was uh, was appointed by New York Mayor Fiorel LaGuardia in the 30s to basically run the Parks Department. And from there, he just began amassing different kinds of power, so that he, you know, he he essentially could craft the city of his own, you know, of his own desires. 1920s, 1930s, he's coming into prominence in a period of the automobile. And everyone thought this was the direction that the world was going to go. And in fact, in many ways, it, it did. And in many ways, the automobile made New York a great place. But Robert Moses kind of like exploited this idea or saw it into fruition over the next few decades. It's a very mixed legacy, shall we say, because mm. You know, he built a vast system 
of subways and bridges and came up with very clever and ingenious ways of paying for those using fair money from bridges like the Triborough Bridge, but also uh, primarily using after the Great Depression, there was all of this government funding that he could now use. And he, he got very, very good at being able to, to find ways of using government funding for these projects that he wanted to build. And so as a result, New York became an automobile city. But the problem is, is that he was looking at it from a certain perspective, but one perspective was not actually from the perspective of New Yorkers. He was trying to make a city run, but he wasn't really looking at the neighborhoods. He wasn't looking at individual communities, and he wasn't looking at trying to make New York a better place to live. He was trying to make it a sort of a more efficient place to get around in. Because of all of that, a lot of many of his projects ended up sending New, York, New Yorkers out of the city and encouraged people, oh, there's all these great new roads. Um, Let's get out of the city, <laughs> uh, one thing. And then another, a, a more seriously, is he, um, his projects were often very um, prejudiced, were often um, not for everyone in New York, but for, for certain classes in New York. You can see how this plays out in everything from his Long Island parks and his parkways. It's to take you out of the city, first of all, in an automobile, which not everybody's going to have in the 30s and 40s. Exactly. Only people of a certain wealth class had them. And some of his early projects in Long Island, such as Jones Beach and all those, I mean, those are really impressive, great places for the public. But a lot of the... Um, the roads and the overpasses and the bridge the, uh, that he built, um, you can't take a bus on them. They're too low. So that is like, well, you can only go out here if you have a car. You know, then it gets a little bit more fraught once you get to like the 50s and the 60s. And he's already, he has amassed an immense amount of power. And, and there were just a series of mayors that were kind of like, he could really sort of call the shots. Moses lives till the early 1980s, but his true downfall and lack of influence in the city comes when he proposes a new highway that would run down Broome Street. Uh, the Lower Manhattan Expressway, which was to be built in the 1950s, was to be a 10-lane elevated highway. The Cross Bronx Expressway was six lanes that would cut through the neighborhoods of Soho and Little Italy and destroy the iconic Washington Square Park in the village. He didn't care. I guess that's perhaps one of the um, things to take away with Robert Moses is that it didn't bother him because he was just trying to make things efficient. The plans have been delayed for several years. We're picking up steam again. Moses wanted better access and a Fifth Avenue address to a massive urban renewal project that he was doing just south of the historic Washington Square Park. Jane Jacobs and her neighbors wanted to protect the park where she brought her kids to play. Here's what Henry James, author of a novel about Washington Square, said about this historic park. 
It was a place of established repose, as if the wine of life had been poured for you in some pleasant old punch bowl. Wharton, Whitman, Poe, Crane were drawn there. Then came the artist, de Kooning, Hopper, Pollock, Kerouac, Dylan, Baez, Peter, Paul, and Mary. Home to protest, marches, riots. The park had come to symbolize free speech. But for most, it was just a place to hang out. The, the real people who sort of made, who started the ball rolling and getting sort of Robert Moses and his ideals overturned were those in little neighborhoods like the West Village, you know, that were going to be decimated by a Robert Moses project. But those people happened to have um, a little money and they happened to have some sort of influence and were able to stand up and push against him. And that kind of got the ball rolling. But yeah, I mean, the, the village was always kind of uh, even going back into the 20s, kind of the art artist neighborhood. Uh. Yeah, even it's been for, for over 100 years. I mean, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people hear Greenwich Village and they think 1960s. Right. <laughs> you know, like folk music and beat poetry and everything. But really, it had been the sort of bohemian area. It was also like a big African-American neighborhood there, and there was also a big Italian neighborhood there. And to this day, you'll see some vestiges of that. But then a lot of it was, um, yeah, like Bohemia. I mean, a lot of New York's deep artistic roots will trace itself right through Greenwich Village. And so um, by the 1950s, I mean, you already had um, people moving into refurbishing townhouses and brownstones. And these these neighborhoods have a certain identity that makes them beautiful and valuable and makes them a like the sort of ideal community ideal neighborhood um where there's interaction there's safety um you know people are doing well it's, it can be very middle class and you rip a you just heartlessly like rip a highway through it and all that's going to be upended like every aspect of that kind of life it's the first time that one of Moses' projects is significantly opposed, and politicians, uh, one village politician named Carmen DeSapio in particular, starts to take notice. He's a person with some influence. There's some stalling of the project, and there's this moment that occurs when Robert Moses is to talk, and the neighborhood activists there are ready, like they figure he's going to argue with them, and He's so incensed that he doesn't even want to make an argument at the public hearing. He merely says, the only ones against this project are a bunch of housewives. And storms out. There'll never be another Robert Moses. Like, no one will ever be able to amass this number of, like, government positions mm -hmm. at once. I think it's actually illegal to do this now. He had done such a good job in the 30s. So, I mean, he started, he really did start at, with as Parks, as the Parks Commissioner, and um, and developed it out from there. I mean, he, he used Parkways was his way to get into highway development, was the idea of like, well, if you're going to have these parks all over the place, people need to get there, so I need to develop those too. So, I mean, it was sort of like, this was sort of his outward way of like, of of accumulating all of this power and you know and it's he was brilliant at it he was he was devious at it also it's kind of a classic story of david versus goliath if you will of little people power versus big man power 
people power versus money power, all of those things in the struggle between Robert Moses and Jane Jacobs. And at the height of the conflict between these two, it was almost like both of them were unfamiliar with each other's worlds. For Jane Jacobs, the idea of reforming everything in these concrete palaces, uh, one of the things she's opposed to is the building of the Lincoln Center Theater in uh, New York City, uh, which many see as a beautiful set of buildings, but to her, they're just these square concrete boxes. And that she felt strongly that architects and planners, Moses the lead among them, were ignoring human nature and ignoring the way real people lived in cities. And she would spend her life fighting for those issues in New York and then later in Canada. You could have these highways and have those communities. You could build around them. You could build them in a way that there was a balance, but he chose not to. Mm -hmm. He just chose, for instance, to just like rip through the Bronx, displace tens of thousands of people. These are just sort of like the different kinds of dangers that you get with infrastructure that I think infrastructure and developing and continuing to develop infrastructure for urban areas is incredibly important. But we've learned the hard way in New York City that it's it doesn't always improve the lives of New Yorkers. Building a big, shiny new highway or some kind of like new project. But for all his greatness, Robert Moses may have been brought to his downfall by a single typewriter key. We mentioned how Jacobs kind of had the people power and Robert Moses the power of the big money and the influence. Um, one of the things that Jacobs does is she has spies and activists who are watching things very closely, watching for any developments, and of course, uh, letting politicians know how they feel and creating an awful lot of trouble for politicians who previously had sided with Moses and it was all upside for them. Uh, Moses was a very influential person and he had the connection of other people that could do right by the politicians. Now, there was a downside to supporting Moses. And these activists would be at City Hall quite a bit. When Moses would try to sneak in a plan, which was one of his tactics, he would sneak in a plan with little notice and then bring the project to a hearing, hopefully with no one showing up. The activists at City Hall would find out. In fact, there were tipsters who were even working at the City Hall who were part of the project. In the second iteration of the plan, Moses and his allies, realizing that community groups were helpful in, in this battle and that there was a war, decided to create community groups of their own. These days we have the term, you know, fake news or astroturf, uh, to describe groups that, that kind of aren't really representing any part of the community but have a name like Community for Progress and things like that. But when the press releases for some of these community groups came out, they noticed that there was a faulty R key on the typewriter. And this was true of this public relations firm and also of these community groups. So one of Jane Jacobs' spies volunteered to visit the public relations firm, and he noticed a telegram from Rose Associates on a desk. Rose Associates, David Rose Associates, was a developer 
who had been chosen to undertake the project. Jane Jacobs came to the next public meeting armed with this evidence of a backroom deal. It's the same old story, she says. First, the builder picks the property, then he gets the planning commission to designate it a slum, and then the people get bulldozed out of their homes. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass, risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. There's a lot of factors that went into his downfall, a lot of it has to do with New York's own financial crisis that happened beginning in the 1960s, of which, you know, he certainly played a role in the city's downgrade by that by that period of time. But by, you know, by this time, you're talking a lot more progressive sort of energies in city government, mm-hmm. such mainly like mayors like you had Governor Nelson Rockefeller, you had mayors like John Lindsay who were a lot more swayed by those sorts of arguments that were being waged by Jane Jacobs, pushing against the kind of Robert Moses mode of developing a city. He was essentially over by the 70s, and that kind of like city building, that kind of thought process, the things that he sort of, you know, perfected, that was sort of done by the 1970s. But it is sort of fascinating to see, like, could he have amassed, could he have continued to amass so much power that he was pretty uncontrollable? I mean, he really sort of was in the 1950s. Was he at all, and, and I'm asking because I'm not as much familiar with him, his story, was he at all corrupt? Well, that's a, that's a thing, not, not in the traditional, not in that old 19th century mm-hmm. concept mm-hmm. of like getting paybacks or whatever. And that was still going on in New York in the 20th century, trust me. And I'm sure he was able to maneuver through that. And he wasn't, for instance, he didn't own the companies that did the work. He didn't put money in his, uh, any more than say his salary or whatever project fees he got. He didn't, you know, like fill his pockets. Oh yeah, yeah. He wasn't like, he didn't have like, like a controlling interest in mm. a concrete company mm. <laughs> or for, <Right>. for instance. <laughs> 
because he was responsible for millions of feet of concrete in the city. Uh, but he, you know, he didn't, yeah, he didn't have that connection where someone like Boss Tweed certainly did. Um, you know, Boss Tweed was even, I think he was on a, he was on the board. He was a, he was a stockholder, I think on the, on the Brooklyn bridge. I mean, there was like, it just, kind of like blatant conflict of interests um, yeah. going on back then that Robert Moses wasn't necessarily quote unquote corrupt in that, in that way. Um, it's, it, you know, more to the, more to the point that he had amassed so much power that by the early, you know, late fifties, early sixties, no one could control him. Um, and so, you know, you imagine a world where he had somehow remained in power for 10 more years after and what that would have been like. You know, it's it's worth noting that there's side effects and some of that Moses money was coming from, from New yeah. Deal funding. And a lot of it was going to New York, too. I think there were yeah. complaints in the rest of the country about how much was going <laughs> to New York. <laughs> I get because Moses was brilliant. He could really, really knew how to get those like to make projects qualify for that money. I mean, it, it's a, it's a long and drawn out fascinating project project. And obviously at this point, I always draw everyone back to the Robert Caro book, the power broker, although, you know, it has a very specific point of view about Robert Moses. Um, it's, it's genius in how it kind of like presents how Moses negotiated with, uh, with the federal government and the city government and making these plans and getting all this funding for the plans. You know, I should add, um, yeah, we're talking in this case about, you know, federally funded, state funded, city funded infrastructure. But it is funny that in the 19th century, a lot of, um, a lot of our grand infrastructure was actually privately funded at first those um those you know are partially privately funded i should say um and the subway lines and the yeah. irt and the those are all private companies in the in the beginning yeah i mean they were yeah i mean isn't that kind of amazing to to think about today and then i mean those those elevated trains were all, all, all were all privately run and this you know the trolley lines the streetcars everything i mean and then the granddaddy of them all, um, Cornelius Vanderbilt in the 19th century, you know, he was, he could just, he just built a train. Like he, he had, he was the only one that had access. His, his, his railroads were the only one that had access to actually come onto Manhattan Island, which in the 19th century, that was just New York. So, I mean, it's just, it's just amazing how much, uh, of the in infrastructure was developed by, you know, private operators who didn't really have the needs of New York City necessarily in mind. So yeah, it's a useful critique, I think, uh, when evaluating an infrastructure policy as discussions start, if they ever get started on the on this on this particular round of infrastructure discussion. Uh, if there's massive infrastructure spending from the federal level, it's wealth. It's it's worthwhile, you know, asking at least those two questions of one, who benefits, who who personally is benefiting? Is there one company getting most of the grants? And yeah. and then also what communities benefit and and where is it going and how is it mixing with with what you have there? I mean, I think everyone wants to fix their bridges and maybe expand an airport or two but uh yeah when it when it gets to a lot of money coming in uh you know you wonder about it you also wonder when will it 
stop. I mean, and not to mm-hmm. not to sound like you know, we just did a, a podcast on Eisenhower, and he had the um, you know his uh, farewell address. He mentioned the military industrial complex because he saw that that was going to continue and it couldn't be stopped if you just have military spending in various congressional districts. When's it uh-huh. ever going to stop? And that's always something to ask about massive infrastructure spending on the federal level. We all have a, a few pet projects we want, but then when will it ever stop? I mean, these are all valid yeah. critiques. Infrastructure is, in a way, the ultimate subverting of democracy because to build a road, you're going to go through something. So someone's not going to like it no matter what you do. Sure. <laughs> uh, so, so, yeah. I, I live I, right here. I'm recording about a block away, actually. You can't hear it because it's there's nice... Uh, soundproofing around here but the the bqe the brooklyn queens expressway which is a trident to robert moses creation is built through here and um before this was built um on the other side of that bqe is a neighborhood called red hook um, which was an old kind of shipping 19th century shipping porting neighborhood um because of the bqe because of this thing that he built. And the BQE like transports millions of people mm. every year. I mean, it's part of this massive, um, massive um, interstate program. It's like it's hugely important for the, for the transportation of people, the moving around of people. But it cut Red Hook off. Like it just like a limb. And Red Hook, you can't get to Red Hook by the subway. And so this, it ripped out like the main thoroughfare, like Hamilton Avenue, ripped it out. And then as a result, I mean, the neighborhood was already like doing pretty badly. I mean, mm-hmm. it was, um, you know, there's a, the people who lived there were abandoned by this decision. And I mean, there's always going to be, yes, you're totally right in these infrastructure projects there's always going to be people who lose their homes there's going to be neighborhoods that get devastated um i mean i think you uh, bring up uh brooklyn and i think it's interesting because that is kind of the exploding uh area right now in terms of people wanting to live there there there's some some of these issues i hear things uh, from people uh you know i don't really go to brooklyn much but i hear things about a lot of construction, a lot of disruption. Oh, yeah. So there's so Brooklyn's going through this. Um, there was like about 10 years ago, Brooklyn started to be properly gentrified, mm-hmm. meaning that um, neighborhoods that were either kind of working class, middle class neighborhoods, uh, those people got priced out of those neighborhoods or it would be cases like industrial areas where people weren't necessarily living, but those industries had closed or those had moved out of New York. So that people started moving into those and, and made them kind of like slightly more affluent enclaves, the rise of the hipster, whatever, that kind of thing Mm -hmm. What you have now you have you have that sort of gentrification now kind of working its way through various neighborhoods in in Brooklyn those older gentrified gentrified neighborhoods like Williamsburg being one example are now going through a different kind of thing called a sort of a hyper gentrification and many areas of Manhattan and areas of Queens are doing this too and even some parts of Brooklyn where um it's 
it's brand new constructions. The waterfront is being changed into like row after row of like really ritzy, high priced condos. Um, so that's, so that is, you know, what that's doing though, to get back to this idea of infrastructure, it's putting a huge weight and burden because now all of a sudden there are all of these people or a different, there's always been a lot of people in Brooklyn. It's a it's a hugely populated place, but what it's doing now is it's bringing a lot of people with money into Brooklyn, and they're the, and they're also bringing a little some cer- a certain set of demands with them. So and so what the city is doing right now is trying to juggle all these different things. And you know Brooklyn's a it's a it's a very fascinating. Uh, what's happening in Brooklyn is kind of happening all over the United States, though. You know, there's oh, I a think lot of- so, because I think, yeah, I mean, uh, as we spoke earlier, New York mirrors the other cities. I mean, San Francisco, going to hear the same thing uh, about all the tech yeah, guys I mean, moving in. and Yeah, I mean, it's, it's insane. I mean, how do people... <laughs> How do people pay the amount of money? I mean, like, Brooklyn is bad enough. San Francisco is insanely expensive. And, you know, I mean, people people talk about these Brooklyn neighborhoods like they're quote-unquote discovered, like the quote new hot neighborhood. People have people live in those neighborhoods. They've lived here for decades. You know, there's there's neighborhoods that people have lived their whole lives in, and now all of a sudden these sort of new waves of gentrification are pushing them out because the rents are the the rents are outrageous and it's not just the rents it's it's you know it's anything like the grocery store is expensive i mean my i don't live anywhere near an, ex, an inexpensive grocery store there's a shift and the thing is is like a lot of those the things that are being brought in by that are actually great crime does go down the streets are cleaner or safer they're well lit um, there's a lot more amenities. There's a lot more people on the street. There's a lot more things to do. All of those things are good, and there are good aspects to gentrification if a city can handle it carefully and do it well. But um, what you know, what I do, what I, what does concern me. And it's so funny because I just did a, I recorded another podcast two, two days ago. I'm echoing the same statements, which is it can't go on like this forever there's going to be, it's going to top out. And so then what happens? What happens when you have like a million luxury condos that have just been built? What's going to happen if New York experiences something like it did in the 1960s and 70s? You know, like if the good times slow down, let's just say. Yeah, no, that's certainly, a, that's a concern too. Uh, anytime something's built, I'm concerned that it's built right and will it withstand not just the, the weather, but also population changes. I mean, I think this is a huge problem with projects built after some of the slum clearance laws of the 40s and 50s, and then these giant tower projects were built, which seemed like a great idea for service provision and for probably some budget reasons, but then when you start figuring crime into it, they were just created to for, for, for horrible crime conditions yeah. and and there's always these uh oh a reminder to everyone that the voice you are hearing might be familiar to you if you listen to the Bowery's Boys podcast. You're I'm talking with uh, Greg Young of the Bowery Boys podcast. He does that show with Tom Myers. Could you have ever imagined talking about great men and you know uh, <laughs> could you have ever imagined <laughs> I know where you're going that, with the, this. <laughs> that the first of all that the presidential election of 2016 would have two New Yorkers in it? 
And then yeah. second of all, that, uh, you know, our, our Donald Trump, who also has a long history in the city, would become president. Back in 2011, I can't remember the, name, the, the episode number, mm-hmm. but you can look through our back catalog. I actually recorded a whole show on Donald Trump in 2011, and it was because he had he was going to throw his hat into the ring in 2012. I don't know if you, anyone remembers that, um, but the um, the election that eventually got us uh, Mitt Romney. But so I decided to look at his. <laughs> sort of like his career in New York City. Mm -hmm. You know, I could not have even imagined at that point. (laughs) It's weird to listen to that show now because a lot of people will hate that show (laughs) because they're just like, why did you do a show about Trump? I'm like, it's why, why not? Why not? He's a, he's a part of this. He and his father, Fred, Absolutely. You can't, you know, you can't tell this, the story. We were talking about the downtimes of the, of the seventies in the city, and you can't tell the story of the resurgence of the cities kind of starting in the eighties without talking about, I mean, I would talk about Koch too, but I I think you have to bring up Trump and the father as well um, as, as part of that story. And, and, you know, the grand Hyatt and him taking that bet on that. I will give like, I will give Donald Trump this credit. He put, you know, he decided to develop in Midtown Manhattan in the seventies. No one, like everyone, was writing off New York as, um, you know, that New York was at its absolute lowest when Donald decided that he wanted to like develop these hotel properties, these various properties in Manhattan, and you know, so so that's really fascinating to me it also is a reflection of of his like of his um sort of psyche i think because his he his father made his money building mostly homes for working middle class people in the bronx i mean in brooklyn and in queens i mean you'll go through many neighborhoods and there'll be fred trump buildings all over the place you know so that's where they that's where they made um, mm-hmm. made their money, and so he was a fair. You know, his father was a ruthless developer. I mean, it's like totally like father like son, and I think that he also, um, you know, his his father made all these connections with um, with sort of ruthless l- lawyers. You know, and so that is, I mean, that's another big element of what. Donald Trump would do in the 80s and 90s is that he would always enter these things with a sort of a a, a network of sort of legal protections and he would mm. always be in court he would always be suing people to kind of get what he wanted i mean the um the story alone of the whole situation with the Empire State Building is kind of amazing because he, in the nineties, New Yorkers could wake up in the morning and have Donald Trump. It was Donald Trump versus the Helmsleys, you know? <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. The, the, the big rivalry there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to get the, we have a whole show on it. Essentially the Empire State Building was owned by different people than the land. So there, <laughs> it's a very long story of how that kind of happened. But um, there were always going to be some sort of disagreements. And so Donald was on one side and the Helmsleys were on the other. And let's just say, I mean, I, th- I think that, you know, the Donald Trump that we see 
Now, it's not as it's not a surprising person. It's if you look through his history in in the eighties and nineties and how he developed projects here, and he was a certain a bit of ruthlessness as well. It's not a business that that's one thing I'll say. It's not a business that allows for um, somebody to be um, very uh, nice and respectful of. You've got to deal with like workers and unions and deliveries and materials and be getting sued and big landowners and yeah, <laughs> yeah. And well, let's just start, let's just say that the the um the temptations for being incredibly corrupt in today's real estate market are are still there to a great degree i mean i do feel like um there are um there are companies there are people who are attempting to do things more even-handedly so i mean it's not a it's it's not just like a whole world of corruption, but it, but like you know, in the nineteen seventies and eighties, um, real estate and real estate development was um, yeah, it was a little a little different than it is today. I think so. I mean, it is kind of funny that our our country has elected a, a real estate developer when our whole country, like every you know every major city, is dealing with this same sort of gentrification, hyper gentrification thing. That you know, real estate. That cities are being kind of boiled down to their value in real estate. So it's a good symbol, I think. It's very symbolic <laughs> that he's our president right now. No, great point. Great point there. Well, here's a like a thought experiment, which I've I, I've certainly read about. If you think about who are our Vanderbilts in the 21st century, well, it's like it's you know it's Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> it's uh you know it's it's That's Apple. True. Amazon and it's and so you know I mean I've I've read a couple articles of uh, sort of radically posed articles that are sort of interesting about the the theory of like isn't the internet now a public utility and is to that be is that going to at one point be taken over by the government and is that even possible and I mean it's fascinating to think of the of the the Vanderbilts and the Morgans of the Gilded Age. Well, yeah, I mean, it's certainly viable thought. Um, if you look at uh, phones, telephones were intensely regulated by the government from the early um, beginnings, the early uh, 20th century. By 1920, you had most railroads were almost completely under the control of the federal government. They had just been uh-huh. so, you know, law by law, they regulated railroads more and more. They were the big villain. They were the big, um, you know, fat cats, though, those railroads. They were going out of business and taking investor money and all of these things. Yeah. And eventually, by the time you get to 1920, a progressive movement, and there's, a, there's enough, there's pretty intense regulation of railroads. And then people start with trucking and trying to get things other ways. So it is interesting to see what might happen now uh, with the Internet as infrastructure. I know, yeah, you know, there was a lot of talk about municipal municipalities doing muni Wi-Fi. Uh, mm-hmm. Never, I don't think New York ever needed to do it because there's enough private Wi-Fi. But There's some city-run Wi-Fi. I don't think very many people use it. I mean, thank goodness. I mean, I don't actually, I take that back. Do I, do I like the fact that you, we now have um, Wi-Fi on the subway? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> for, for a while, it was like, Oh yeah, wouldn't it be nice to have Wi-Fi down here so I could, you know, stream my podcast or whatever? But now that you're getting it and people are taking phone calls on the on the subway, I was like, oh, 
miss the days when this was like a zone, an internet free zone, and we could just all be down here and and inhabit um, a, a sort of like a 20th century world. Hey, we've been talking with uh, Greg Young of the Bowery Boys podcast. Now, where can people get your podcast? Well, we're on, we're everywhere that podcasts uh, you can find podcasts. Just type the words Bowery Boys, and that name um, we're named after a 19th century gang. Although there was also a comedy troupe from the 30s that is also named after the gang. It was an actual street gang. Um, and so we're on you know iTunes, Overcast, Stitcher. We're on all you know most of the places you can find um, podcasts. Um, you can also go to our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com. And, you know, we're on Facebook and everything and on Twitter at Bowery Boys. Greg, thanks for coming on. My history can beat up your politics. <laughs> no, thank you. It's been it's been a blast. I love talking about these uh, these crazy, <laughs> these crazy Robert Moses and his and the gang. So, so thank you very much. You're welcome. Want to thank Greg Young for coming on the podcast. Please check out the Bowery Boys podcast uh new york city history i think you're going to like it a lot if you're a lover of history you know how often new york city comes up on on this cast in one form or another during the 19th century you know like almost an eighth of the population lived in that one place so very important for some of the presidential elections they talk about everything and it's really a history of america a reminder about the premium podcast, www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. Thanks so much for those that are supporting the program with the premium podcast. They're getting more episodes, and they're also helping me out. Thanks for listening. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Podcasts.